You have a Bible, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 before we get to partaking of the Lord's Supper tonight. 1 Corinthians 10, one of two places in 1 Corinthians where Paul is explicit about this thing we're doing tonight, the Lord's Supper. What it means, what it's about, and how it helps. Now on Sunday we were digging into Colossians in just the first couple of verses and I tried to introduce several concepts there in those first two verses under the rubric of identity. Asking the question of what is our identity? How do we identify ourselves? What are our identity traits? As Christians we battle to gain the perspective that our identity in Christ is enough. So we have to shoo away the temptations for a substitute and subpar identity. And there are many, many options. We talk about family or job, education, resume, your sports teams, recreation you might have, appearance, ethnicity, money, possessions, kids or grandkids. All these things form who we are. And there's no denying that they form who we are. But do they form who we are at the expense of our identity in Christ? Or are they an identity for ourselves in such a way that if any one of them were taken away, it would drastically change us? Well, if you find the things that when taken away drastically change you, you found your idols. Tonight I want to talk about that similar thing, not of identity, but I. Uh, idolatry. Our identity tells us something about our gods, our saviors, our idols. Idolatry is another way to talk about something that utterly defines us, right? Any of those things that I listed there that could be potential identity traits outside of Christ all have their own idol or idols. Martin Luther's Catechism says, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. We could also say, that is your Savior. That whatever your heart clings to and relies upon is not only your God, and hence it's idolatry, but there's a sense in which we have many lowercase s saviors. David Paulison writes this, he says, That most basic question which God poses to each human heart has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. Questions bring some of people's idol systems, idol systems, to the surface. These kind of questions: to who? Or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would you really, what would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? What do you look for, for power and success? These questions, or similar ones, tease out whether we serve God or idols. Whether we look for salvation from Christ or from false saviors. So hopefully you can already hear how this sounds very similar to what we were talking about on Sunday as it relates to different identity traits. And instead, what we said on Sunday is we need an identity that it's in Christ and Christ alone. So turn to 1 Corinthians 10 if you're not there already, and we'll look at verses 14 to 22. 
You can see it's about idolatry. That's the first verse in this section. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, you see the Lord's Supper connotations here, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread, the bread that we break, is it not a participation or sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You can see the themes here. Flee idolatry, the first verse of this section. And then Paul talks about idolatrous celebrations. And he contrasts those idolatrous celebrations with what Christians should have, this Lord's Supper celebration that we're having tonight. Now there are two different contexts or kinds of idolatry that Paul's talking about here. One is back in the Old Testament. It's Israel in the wilderness. You see all the way back in chapter 10, verse 1, he's talking about our fathers who all passed through the sea. If you look ahead to uh, verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. He's referring back to Israel's wanderings in the wilderness in their their dabblings with idolatry all through their history. But he's also talking about that Greco-Roman pagan variety that would have been the background for the Corinthian Christians, right? They would have come out of idolatrous worship. They're not Jews who have this ancestry necessarily of, you know, idol uh, worship in the wilderness and these wanderings and these, these testings that are all talked about there in 1 Corinthians 10, the first part of it. They are folks who have dabbled in their past with different kinds of idols and different kind of pagan sacrifices, different kinds of meal and drink things that went along with idol worship in that Greco-Roman culture. Paul's talking about both of those kind of idolatries. Now, we'll eventually get to our kind of idolatry today, which is a little bit different. But let's back up. Let's try to keep in mind what the Bible means when it talks about idolatry. Let's try to flesh out from verses before, chapters and books before, the imagery of idolatry in the Bible. The imagery, one imagery at least, is one of harlotry. That idolatry is like harlotry. Or to put it more bluntly, idolatry is like whoring around with other gods. Listen to Isaiah 57. Verse 5, it says, You who burn with lust among the oaks and under every green tree, behind the door and the doorpost, you've set up your memorial. That's an idol worship kind of word, memorial there. You've set up a memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed and you've gone up to it and you've made it wide. 
You've made a covenant for yourself with them, false gods. You have loved their bed and you've looked on their nakedness. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that God frequently likens his relationship with his people to that of a husband and a wife. Therefore, to go outside of that to find another God is like cheating in the marriage relationship. It's like a spiritual adultery. It's like a spiritual whoredom. In fact, 20 times in the book of Ezekiel, God likens Israel's idolatry to whoring. That word, literally in the ESV, whoring, 20 times. So not just adultery. That's bad enough, right? Adultery is bad, even you could say in our culture, it's frowned upon. Those who maybe are trying to get a divorce, uh, the, the spouse that has committed adultery is maybe going to get less of the settlement in the divorce. It's frowned upon in our culture, but maybe more frowned upon even in our culture, and of course by God as well, is whoring. Not just adultery, but prostitution, selling yourself. But get this, according to Ezekiel 16, in this picture, God's people didn't just prostitute themselves to other false gods like they got paid. They paid. They paid the false gods. They paid. They sacrificed. They didn't get anything in return. They paid and sacrificed to go outside of Yahweh to other gods. The point is this. It's very, very gross. Idolatry is spiritually gross. It's hideous. It's insidious. An implication for idolatry is uh, maybe this phrase, you will be like them. That golden calf idolatry, remember that story? Moses is getting the Ten Commandments up on Mount Sinai, and then he comes down to find Aaron, his right-hand man, and the rest of the people doing what? They've made a golden calf, and they have been told, this is your God who's brought you out of Egypt. Now, whether they think this is an image of the true God, or whether they think um, we're making up a new God altogether, and we're going to say that this is the one that brought us out of Egypt. It really doesn't matter. It's idolatry any way you slice it. They have made an idol. They've broken both of the first two commandments. Now, this golden calf idolatry in the rest of the Old Testament is something like a prototypical or symbolic, quintessential example for all future idol worship. So when God's people dabble in idol worship later on, he brings back calf references, calf pictures. And they've been told this from the beginning, that they will become like that which they worship. So have you seen this phrase in the Old Testament? Stiff-necked. Now, when I read that, I, for years, have just thought that meant stubborn. You're stiff-necked. You're, you're being stubborn. Well, G.K. Beale, who has a whole book on uh, idolatry, the theme of idolatry in the Bible, says that stiff-necked, instead, is a, a reference to being calf-like. You're being like a stubborn, dumb cow. Here you go. You worship the golden calf, and now you become like that which you worship. So God says, oh, you like idols? Okay. 
you're going to become like one. You see, we were made to reflect and resemble what we love and admire. That's a principle um, that's, that's in humanity. I'm going to botch this word. I think it's called totemism, where we get totem poles in Native American culture. Now, there's debate among religious sociologists as to what totemism um, really is, but, but it seems like, from what I've read, that totemism is the acting like something to become like something. So if I understand this right, I don't have much Native American background or experience, but if I understand it right, that's part of why in Native American celebrations they dress up animal-like, feathers, skins. It's to connect with that thing that they're imitating. Now, we disagree with that. Pantheism is part of that worldview where God or the spirit realm is in creation and you connect with it through these means. What that is tapping into that is true, a principle in humanity that's undeniable, is that we want to become like what we worship. We worship and become like that thing we worship. You see it right in the verse that we began with earlier tonight. 2 Corinthians 3.18, right? That we're beholding Christ, and as we behold Christ in the mirror of the word of God, we're being like him. We're being changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's kind of like a biblical totemism. You see that? We stare at him, we want to act like him, and we become him. Well, the reverse is also true. Adam and Eve in the garden... Yes, glorify God, reflect his image rightly, wonderfully, gloriously. Yet in sin, it takes a twist, doesn't it? It takes a twist now where we worship these things. We want to become like all the wrong things. We were made to reflect and resemble what we love and admire, but now in sin, in judgment, it means that we worship and reflect far lesser things than the Yahweh creator. That's the essence of sin. So G.K. Beale's book on this topic of idolatry in the Bible is called We Become What We Worship. He says, what we revere, we resemble either to our ruin or to our restoration. Now, let's flesh this out a little bit more. Remember, we're on this topic of the implications of idolatry that we become like what we worship. Listen to Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Contrasted with that, their idols of the world are silver and gold. They're the work of man's hands. They have mouths, right? Uh, Picture a carving. Picture an idol statue. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands. They can't feel. They have feet. They can't get up and walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Next verse. Those who make them will become like them. Those who make and worship these false idols, it's like they have ears, but they don't hear. Spiritually speaking, they have eyes, but they don't see. Oh, they have hands, but they really can't move to the glory of God. They have feet, but they really can't walk their way to God. 
They've become like the idols that they worship. So another component of idol worship is that it's just plain stupid. That's what the Bible says. It says it a couple times in the Psalms. It says it in the middle of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 to 48 is a long section on how God is different than idols. And God mocks these idols like he already did in Psalm 115. He he points out the fact that you have to make your idol. Someone had to make your idol. Someone had to carve it. Someone had to design it. Someone had to shape it, scrape it, sand it, oil it. And then you had to buy it. And now you have to keep it. You have to carry it with you. You have to protect it. You have to make sure it doesn't get dinged. You have to keep it in good shape, wrapped up nice and safe. You see how weak this thing is. It can't do anything. It can't save anyone. In fact, you have to carry it with you. It weighs down your donkey, Isaiah, I think 45 says. Can't move. Listen how Habakkuk 2 puts it. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood. For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions this speechless idol. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! When he says to a mute stone, Arise! This is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and yet there's no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Our God speaks. Our God breathes. Our God moves. Our God helps. Our God is not like any other God or would-be God. You say, well, Ryan, that's fine. But doesn't that apply to perhaps some weird tribe in Papua New Guinea... Uh, perhaps the, the Israelites in 6 BC, 6,000 uh, 6, BC. Maybe it applies to the Corinthians in 55 AD, right? They're trying to get rid of their Greco Roman idol worship as part of their past. But we don't have that kind of temptation in our 21st century Western American culture, do we? Well, what we in the West. In the 21st century, no best are the idols of self, relationships, idols of technology, idols of materialism and government, entertainment. There are idols of frivolity today. There are idols of appearance. So Paul's idolatry in in 1 Corinthians 10 is both an allusion to the Old Testament... And the idolatry that he's warning the Corinthians about that they have come out of and that they see around them all the time in their Roman culture. Both of those are what we might call classic idolatry, right? I mean, just like you think of idolatry, you think of idol worship. Here's this little statue and I worship it. Okay, let's call that classic idolatry. What today we might call is heart idolatry. Our idols are not of wood or stone. Our idols are maybe things, but they're more of what our heart sets upon, which could be aspirations, which could be ideals, which could be 
philosophies. Tim Keller has a great list in his book on idolatry. He lists ten different categories. Can I list just some different categories for you so you can see where this is going and how you can see how prevalent idolatry is in our own hearts? He says there are theological idols. He says there are sexual idols. He says there are ritualistic idols, which are probably closest to those of the Old Testament. Magic idols, witchcraft, the occult. He says there are political and economic idols. Racial, national idols, which spring to racism and nationalism and ethnic pride that turns to bitter oppressiveness. He says there are relational idols which would lead to dysfunctional family systems, codependency, fatal attractions, loving your life through your children. He says there are religious idols such as moralism and legalism and the idolatry of gifts and using religion as a pretext for abuse. He says there are philosophical idols, systems of thought that make some created thing either the problem with life or some created thing the solution to the problem. He says there are cultural idols, radical individualism in the West, clan at the expense of individual rights in the East. And then he has this last category he just calls deep idols. Motivational drives and temperaments that are made into absolute. So there's, there's power idolatry, and there's approval idolatry, and there's comfort idolatry, and there's control idolatry. You get the point. John Calvin, back in the 16th century, said the human heart is an idol factory. Every one of us is, from our mother's womb, an expert in inventing idols. An idol, I would put it like this, is any satisfaction, allegiance, longing, or trust that is not God. You say, well, I trust some things that aren't God. I love some things that aren't God. What do you say to that, Ryan? Well, you heard me right. Notice, I didn't say idolatry is anything that is not above God. So he's number one, but then you have your number two and your number three and your number four. As if he's distinct from those things. No, every good gift is to be enjoyed as unto the enjoyment and glory of God. So children can be enjoyed either as an idol... Or children can be enjoyed in their proper place as an expression of God's goodness, as a picture of the gospel, as part of his care and creation, and to his glory and with thanksgiving for whenever they're good. Oh, other times too, I guess. Here, let me give you another quote. Augustine, in the 5th century. This is a little thick, so I'll unpack it after I say it. Augustine said, we love him, God, too little when we love anything together with him that we love not for his sake. We love God too little. Or, I would put this in there, we have an idol on our hands when we love anything together with him. He's even in the picture. That we don't love for his sake. 
Do you see how this relates to the book of Colossians where Christ is preeminent? He's, he's not number one. He's everything. He's preeminent. The Bible doesn't say that there are none besides, none beside him. Rather, it says there are none besides him. We have to make a, a place for that in our theology. There are none besides God. Well, what do you mean? There are other things in this world besides God. Look, he has a way of saying there, is, there are none besides him. doesn't mean that other things don't exist. It means that he is ultimate in all things. He's not just number one. So idols are sneaky and alluring. It's almost like there is something very demonic about them, something very spiritually blinding even about our idols today. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 10. That there is something demonic behind this idol worship that was going on in that Roman culture in Corinth. I don't know if we could say that the same is true today. I think that we would be foolish to not suspect that the same is true today. That there is something demonic going on when even our culturally accepted idols are truly idolatrous to us. You see, our idols today are more advanced, but they're no less alluring than the idols of the Old Testament or the idols in Corinth. In some ways, the idols of today are all the more dangerous than their statue, statue counterparts because they don't seem to be worship, right? Our culture doesn't say, worship this gizmo, worship this car, worship this girl, worship this feeling, worship this success you have worship this state of mind worship drunkenness the the world doesn't say worship it and so we don't think it's spiritual the bible puts these things in very spiritual and sometimes demonic categories those things may not be a bad thing in itself to start with but when it becomes a worship thing when it becomes a god thing when it becomes a competing satisfaction, a competing allegiance, a competing, competing love or a competing trust, that thing is an idol. Idols promise more than they ever fulfill. They're costly. And we become like the idols we worship. Both the Lord and idols are jealous. They're both jealous gods, jealous saviors. You, you can't have them both, not ultimately. So if we're the Lord's, our idols will, look at verse 22, our idols will provoke the Lord to jealousy. I'm thankful for that and I'm scared of that. Right? I mean, that sounds like a scary thing. You provoke the Lord to jealousy. And yet that sounds like, uh, that, could be, that could be my salvation right there. If we're not the Lord's, he will unfortunately give us the desires of our heart. He will turn us over to the idols that we pursue and we want. And we will become like them. So what's the anecdote? The anecdote, how shall we flee idolatry? It was right there in verse 14. Flee from idolatry. Here's how. You flee to a true God that saves. You flee to a superior satisfaction. 
A superior allegiance, a superior love, a superior trust. Don't work for the idols that say give, give, give. Instead, in faith, receive from the Lord who gives, gives, gives. So this communion meal, back to 1 Corinthians 10, I mean to really wrap this up there, this communion meal is a reuniting ourselves to our Savior, to our God. We come to this meal tonight uniting ourselves to Jesus. We share, literally that's the word used several times throughout the passage we read, we share in Jesus. In this meal we're sharing in his blood. We're sharing in his body. To the exclusion of sharing with idols. Idols are chased away by this superior savior. So let me read a sister passage now as we wrap this up and close before I pray and we partake together. If you would, maybe just close your eyes and think on 2 Corinthians 6 with me. A sister passage indeed where Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God, that's us, he dwells within our hearts. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said from the Old Testament, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't this meal that we celebrate tonight a reminder, very tangible, physical reminder, that he walked in our midst? He has come to be our God. He has purposed to forever dwell among us. We are now the temple of the living living God. He is a father to us. We are sons and daughters to him. Idols cannot compete. Idols must flee before This kind of saving, giving, gracious, near, living, and jealous God. So before we partake tonight, let me ask you whether you're a Christian, for starters. Whether you know your sins are forgiven. Whether these promises I read from 2 Corinthians 6 about God dwelling in you, forgiving you whether God is your God, whether he's a father to you and you're one of his sons or daughters, do you know that's true? If not tonight, we're glad that you're here with us. We're uh, encouraged by that. But we'd ask that you not partake of this supper, this meal that the rest of us are about to take. There'll be several probably who stay in their seats. Don't feel awkward about that. If you're not a Christian, we'd encourage you to pray. We'd encourage you to watch. We'd encourage you to think. And keep thinking, keep praying, keep pursuing the Lord, keep seeking him while he may be found. Let us know how we can help, perhaps tonight or in upcoming weeks, about questions you might have as to how to become a Christian, what it means to be a Christian, how to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Christians, 
You'll remember that 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we should examine ourselves before we come to the table. So I'd ask you to do that now. And I want you to be diligent and painful about pondering the idols of your heart. Yes, even those ones that no one knows about. You catalog them right now. Go ahead. Pile them up. If this were the whole of the story, they would condemn you. You've already seen, we've already seen, how God hates idolatry. How it's not white little sins here and there. It's rebellion. It's spiritual whoredom. The Lord hates it. He's a jealous God and he's a holy God. But we Christians believe that Jesus died for those sins too. We believe that Jesus died for the idolatry in my heart today, not just the ones before I became a Christian. We believe he died for all of them. We believe he died for them to the fullest. So pile up your idols and throw them at Jesus' feet. Hurl them at the cross. They're already there. If you're his, they're already there. They have already been paid for. When he said, it is finished, the sins of today, the sins of yesterday, and the sins of tomorrow were laid on him. Praise God. Praise God. Lord, as we partake tonight, I pray you to increase faith. I pray you'd humble us. I pray you would remove perhaps the most common idol here, the idol of self-salvation. The idol that tells us if we try harder, if we work more, if we are just more earnest before you, then somehow you will owe us. Somehow we'll get in. Somehow we'll squeak in. Lord, I pray that your word would wash away those kinds of thoughts tonight. I pray your scalpel of your word would cut them away. And I pray, Lord, you'd give us hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. We need a hope that's greater than our sin and only God dying in the flesh, on the cross for us is enough to wash away our sin. So as we partake, Lord, as I said, increase our faith, restore unto us the joy of our salvation, make us free, free indeed. Lord, give us hope. Give us encouragement. Take our eyes off our sin now and let us see the forgiveness, the white cleansing forgiveness that's in the blood of our Savior through his body which was pierced for us, through his blood that was spilled for us. Make these symbols, as it were, come alive to us in our thinking, in our remembrance, in our prayer, in our worship of you and thankfulness to you. Bless these upcoming minutes as we 
partake in this special gift you've given us. Simple, but special gift. Be glorified to use it to your glory and mightily. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.